And remember, last week we gave a, an introduction to the book. We talked about some of the, the main themes. And just as a reminder, God is seemingly absent throughout the whole book, as is any sort of organized religion, any kind of religion whatsoever, even among the Jews that are in the book. So even though God is seemingly absent, as we read this chapter, let's keep in the back of our minds that he's working through his divine providence to preserve his covenant people for the explicit purpose of blessing the nations by bringing the Messiah to redeem them. So with that, let's read Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones." Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and the peoples who are in the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who, heard, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, 
to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've gathered us for the purpose to worship you, for the purpose of fellowshipping with each other, for feeding our souls, for feeding our souls through the, through the blessed fellowship of the saints of God, for feeding our souls upon your word that you've given us, Lord. We're thankful for every good word that you have given us in your word. We're thankful for all 66 books of the Old and New Testament, including this book of Esther. We pray that you bless this time that we're going to spend together learning about the background and how you, through your divine providence, work through all things to save your people. We pray that you bless this time together. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So, uh, as you can see, background is mainly, uh, background, chapter one is mainly background for the, the setup to the Esther-Mordecai narrative. We're not introduced to Esther or Mordecai, obviously, in this first chapter. And so, the main thing that the authors really kind of communicate here is why the king needs a new bride in the first place. If we were to jump, if he were to jump straight to chapter two, we wouldn't have the info of why in the world the king of the most powerful empire in the world at, at the time right now doesn't have a queen so he gives us gives us the background of why king xerxes or king ahasuerus needs a king so even though esther and mordecai are not in the story there's still some lessons that we can we can learn even though we're not really in the, the meat of the story yet and so the we're going to break this chapter into to three sections the the first section is going to be verses verses one through eight and um I think we're going to have enough time to do this. I'm going to read all the sections again as I go through the section. So back to, to verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read those again because um, it never hurts us to read more of God's word or to repeat reading it, right? So, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants the army of Persia, Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were given in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff and of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So let's, let's go back to the Persian Empire. We kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but just, just to, to rehash. Remember, at this time, at this point in history, we're in the, the 5th century B.C. here. Um, right now, this is probably year, actually, we're pretty certain this is year 483 B.C., whenever this, these events are happening. And in this year, the Persian Empire is the greatest empire in the world. It stretches from, from it touches India, it covers all of pa- current-day Pakistan, and kind of goes a little bit into present-day India. It goes all the way up to Greece, Greece in the Mediterranean, comes down, covers most of the Arabian Peninsula, and down into Africa, kind of covering the, the upper and eastern coast of Africa. So the Persian Empire is really big at this time. 
And uh, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus as he's called in Hebrew, is throwing this great party right now. And this party that he's throwing is actually uh, to show that he, he, this empire is vast, it's very wealthy, it's very rich, and it's trying to generate some support among the people to go to war against Greece again. Because and that's, at this time, and this is coming from extra biblical sources obviously, but these are pretty well confirmed, uh, a couple of years prior, Xerxes' father, Darius, had been um, going up against the Greeks, and they had lost quite a few battles against the Greeks. And so he was, some of the Persian people were, were kind of convinced that they didn't need to battle against Greece again. So Persia is up against Greece. They had invaded Athens a couple years before, Darius had, and they were beaten back. Um, this, is before, this is kind of when Greece is starting to establish its empire as well. And so Xerxes here is trying to draw up some support from the people of Persia to go to battle against Greece again. And he, um, Herodotus, who I talked a little bit about last week, he says that there was a great war council that took place in Xerxes' third year, 483 B.C., which is the same, same time period that we're looking at in the first eight verses here, or in the first chapter of Esther. By the way, the whole book of Esther actually covers about 10 years. It's not a couple of weeks or months or something like that. It's about 10 years that it covers. But here in the first chapter, we we're, we're get a, a peek inside of all the pomp and circumstance and all the, the vastness of the wealth and the glory of the Persian Empire. We, get, we have this six-month party that's going on, basically. And this display of wealth is going to help show that the Persian Empire is indeed the greatest in the world. And those who support this war with Greece are going to be richly rewarded. We've got all of this you know, uh, pomp and circumstance going on. We've got, um, at the end of this, we've got this week-long feast that seems to go, uh, you know, at least throughout Susa, which is one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire. It's very big. And there's a feast for everyone that's there. And of note, which we'll encounter later in the chapter, the wine is, is flowing abundantly. So everyone is able to eat and especially drink as much as they please. And you'll see here in verse 8, it says there's an edict that there was no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff to do as each man desired. It was actually a custom in uh, the Persian Empire that the people only drank when the, king, when the king drank. So when he lifted his cup, that's when you could lift your cup. But at this time, in order to, to display the wealth and everything that that's Xerxes is wanting to display, he says you can drink whenever you want, how much you want. You can eat however much you want. We're about to go to war. Let's be happy. We need your support. And so um, we're still today even in our time, across the world and even here in America, lavished with this material opulence and these lavish displays of governmental power and military bravado. But I'm going to turn them over at this point to kind of the, to summarize the lesson that we're going to learn from verses 1 through 8. Psalm 2. So in Psalm 2, we have an anonymous psalm. Psalm 2. Why do the nations raid and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's a prophetic psalm. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so we see here, this is obviously a prophetic psalm. This is talking about Jesus. The, uh, the kings of the earth should do well to realize who the true king of kings is. They need to realize that the only winning side at the end of the world, Persia, Persia would soon be overtaken by the Greeks. The Greeks would soon be overtaken by the Romans. The Romans, the Roman Empire lasted a few hundred years until they were overtaken by the barbarians and the Visigoths. We have these rollovers of empires all throughout world history. The only winning side at the end of the world is going to be the side of Christ. He's the king of kings, and to oppose him is to long for destruction in the end. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is going to roar at the end of days. So this is the lesson that is to be learnt from these first eight verses. Um, Despite all the pomp and circumstance that Xerxes displayed or that um, the nations around the world displayed, if the, the final end is not... Worshipping the king of kings, it's all going to be in vain and it will all come to destruction. We are assured of that. Then after this, the next section is verses 9 through 12. Uh, can I have a volunteer to read that for me? Thanks, Cody. So we have here, after all of the drinking that's been going on, which, interestingly enough, as a side note, uh, Herodotus tells us this is actually how, how the Persians, how the Persian nobles discuss matters of state. At this time, uh, a lot of cultures believe that, you know, being married with wine got you closer to the spirit world and to their gods. And so they would, whenever they discussed matters of state and made, you know, state-level decisions, they would always do this while they were drinking, which may be a questionable, uh, questionable process. Um, I don't, don't think we, we would recommend that. So, in these vast displays of power and glory... King Xerxes, we've got everything that's going on, the six-month display of opulence. And then at the very end, Xerxes has had his wine, and he is going to summon his living trophy of, of power and glory. He's got this beautiful bride, Queen Vashti. And he says, bring her in. Let the nobles see her. Let all of this war council, let's see my beautiful bride. This is what we're going to fight for, the women that are, that are like this in the Persian Empire. 
And so she comes in and she's got her royal wardrobe on, or she's going, she's supposed to come in and have her royal wardrobe on. She's got her crown and her royal jewels. So this is going to, this is going to inspire the war council. This is going to further convince anyone that might have been hesitant. We're going to go fight for Persia because this is what we're fighting for. We're fighting for all of this opulence and glory and for the women like this. And she is this, you know, this, this piece of, piece de resistance of the six-month party. She is this object to be put on display for, for, you know, for the power and the glory of Xerxes. But for some reason, she refuses. Uh, We don't really know why. We don't, you know, we're not given this here. This, this narrative is not, you know, told anywhere else. So, but for some reason, she, she says no. Uh, It could have been because she didn't want to be an object of display. It could have been that, I don't know, the women had been drinking as well and she didn't want to because of that. We don't really know. But for some reason, she refuses. Um, And so you have to understand, this was probably really, really embarrassing for Xerxes. He's trying to convince all of these men to go to war under his command, and he can't even get his own queen to obey him. This is obviously going to make him furious. Now, the, the author of Esther, throughout the whole book, not just here, intentionally does not provide any sort of moral commentary on any of the actions of the characters. Uh, this, this ethical and moral ambiguity of the characters is actually a major feature of the story, for often, or always, divine providence works through human behavior that flows out from confused, ambiguous, and even immoral motives. We see that all the time, right? God uses immoral people to accomplish his will. And the author uh, seems to be setting up this preface to show us that the Persian king has tremendous power and uses it for his own glory with no thought whatsoever about the consequences to others. And he's really setting us up to show that, that Esther and Mordecai have the odds stacked against them. This Persian king wields pretty much unopposed power in any way, which we'll see in the next section. And so uh, Esther being a woman, just like Queen Vashti was a woman, is, it's gonna, she's going to have a tough time if she's going to wield any power whatsoever in the Persian kingdom. And that brings us to the, the next section then, section, this last section of the chapter, 13 through 22. So can I have another, another volunteer to read that? If it please the king, let a royal order go 
Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukai proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Thank you, John. And so Xerxes, he calls in the advisors, uh, this, these uh, people that are well-versed in the law of the, the Persians, and they come to determine that not only has, has Queen Vashti brought, re, brought reproach upon the king, but her actions are going to inspire all the women in the Persian Empire, millions of them, to look at their husbands with contempt and usurp authority over their husbands. And so we get this final royal edict in verse 22 that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Every man is going to be the ruler of the house. Ironically, this is something that Xerxes had not achieved. Just previously, we get this display that Queen Vashti is not going to obey the command of Xerxes. So he sends out a command that everyone should not be like my household and all the men should be the masters of their own household. And so this is, um, despite the, uh, the intentions of the edict, where after showing the vastness of the wealth of the, the Persian king's reach, this portion of the narrative is going to show us how much absolute power and dangerous this absolute power can be. We've got Xerxes here after bringing in his war council and these other counselors that know the law of the Persians, wields absolute power by one edict. It apparently cannot be revoked, too. If you think back to Daniel, we see this in the Persian Empire, too. Because remember in the, the story of Daniel, uh, it's actually Xerxes' dad, Darius, who issues the decree that anyone who is caught praying in the open shall be thrown in the lion's den. And after uh, this is signed and sealed by Darius, um, Daniel is caught praying, and Darius repents, except the law cannot be changed, and you all know the story after that. So we've got two, two examples how the, the laws cannot be changed in the, in the, the uh, government of the Persians. But, and so this gives us an indication that he does wield absolute power. Everything that's going to come later in the book, we have to keep this in the back of our minds. Xerxes is, is all-powerful in this kingdom and how dangerous this absolute power is. But let's think about this in, in contrast to Jesus. He's the only king that's worthy of absolute power, obviously, because he's the only one that can wield this power with true justice. All of us are, are ruined by sin, and to give any man absolute power is going to be an absolute atrocity. Jesus is the only one that is worthy of it because he's the only one that can wield it with true justice. But even then, we see that Jesus' temptation in the desert... I'm going to go over to Matthew chapter 4. In his temptation in the desert, that Satan, Satan who actually empowers all the, the evil rulers of the earth, he offers to give Jesus the kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world and their riches. So picture that now. We just got done talking about that. You know, Persia basically, 
they they controlled almost half of the known world at this time in the in the Near East and even dipping into the Far East. They had all this power and glory. And then Satan actually, he goes and he promises Jesus the same thing almost. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus has the right to claim all these earthly possessions. He made all of the, these earthly possessions. He upholds everything by the power of his word. So he has every right to claim these things. But Jesus doesn't bite when Satan offers him these things. Jesus is later going to go on to exemplify true servant leadership and not leadership out of spite and, and personal gain. And we don't have time to really delve into all that today, but obviously I think everyone here realizes that, that, that Jesus came to, to be a servant even though he was also a leader. And so this brings us to the, another point that I wanted to, to bring up here, a point about, about marital relations, because we see a pretty good example here of what not to do when you're married between you know, King Xerxes and Queen Vashti here. And so I'm going to go to, to two places that you, you've probably already, already picked out. The first one's actually Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to go to Ephesians 5. So Genesis chapter 3. Obviously, we're going to, we're going to go to the fall here. Genesis chapter 3. After... Uh, Eve has taken the fruit, eaten it, given it to her husband. They have both eaten it. God comes before them and he, he pronounces curses first upon the serpent. Then he pronounces a curse to the woman in verse 16 of Genesis 3. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So this, this last portion here is, is what I wanted to focus on. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That isn't just a description of human nature. That's a curse pronounced by God upon the human race and upon marital relations. So we have this, this marred relationship between husband and wife now. And what God is actually saying there to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Despite the natural ordering that God has given us in creation for the husband to be the head of the wife, to take care of her and to lead the family, Eve's natural desire and women's natural desire as a result of the fall is going to be to usurp authority over the husband. And so this is not the natural ordering that God intended. But even though the husbands have been given the headship of the family and are to um, rule the family and lead the family. This actually, this last part, even though God is talking to Eve, is actually a curse pronounced to the men. He says, but he shall rule over you. And so, once again, that's not just a description. That is a curse pronounced upon the man that he is going to have a desire to have this authoritarian rule over his wife and the family which men must, must fight against. And so 
Paul then, in Ephesians 5, goes on to actually develop this quite a bit more. So Ephesians chapter 5, the end of the chapter, starting at verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so this, this is all summed up, and if you notice that the men... Uh, have many more commands than the women do in this, in this, cha- in this chapter that, that Paul says here in this passage. Uh, wives are, are exhorted to submit to their husbands. Paul affirms the created order here that the husband is, is head of the wife, and this is all meant to point to the relationship of Christ and the church. So wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But husbands, that does not give you the, the um, authority to rule with an iron fist and to say everything that I say is the way that it goes. Um, you are to love your wife as you love yourself. You are to um, treat your wife as you would your own body. You know, she is a tender vessel and treat her that way. The, um, the main verse here is, Paul kind of sum, summarizes it up at the end of verse 33. Husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, this is a command given by Paul to respect your husband. But husbands, if you have to demand respect from your wife, as King Xerxes is doing here, he's demanding respect from Vashti. If you have to demand that respect, then you probably don't deserve it. If you're treating your wife in the way that you should be treated, in the way that she should be treated, she will respect you. She will want to. Um, and this is, a, as a side note, in uh, a husband's leading the house, you know, this is not just in matters of, of spiritual things. But in, in also a secular way, I read this one time and it, it made a, a really deep impact on me. Um, the husband, whenever he's leading the family, you know, and taking spiritual decisions and uh, making even household decisions sometimes, one of the things that we, we sometimes overlook, um, especially as husbands, is that when you're leading the family, if you and your wife get into a fight or an argument, you should lead by actually apologizing first, too. Um, that's a big way in which you can lead the family. So just... It's a very practical um, piece of advice for marriage. Husbands, be the first to apologize. And so also, I did also want to mention this, and I think it, it, it bears mentioning here. I, I had a, a wise man once tell me, this was a man who was one of my, my college professors, which you may first be taken aback at. But this guy, um, he was actually a member of this church before he went up to Mississippi State. He, was, he taught New Testament at State. He's so a, a wonderful teacher, really 
started introducing me to the doctrines of grace. But in one of his, his first, first lectures, I think he was actually talking about Genesis 3, he said, uh, and he was even speaking in a secular sense, he said, if you want a very quick, good measure of how honorable a man is, you look at the way he treats his wife. I mean, that, that, really did, that really did stick with me. And so, uh, Ashley, I hope other people see me as, as an honorable man for the way that I treat you. And husbands, you all should aspire to that as well. So even with all these illustrations and examples, we've, we talked about uh, absolute power here. We've talk, we talked about military bravado. We've talked about marital relations. Um, this is really not even the main point of the book. I wanted to draw these things out of the chapter, but this is not the main point of the book. Remember... We're having in the back of our minds as we're reading this, the providence of God. God is going to bring about his, his redemption of his covenant people. The Messiah still has to come to the tribe of Judah. So that is the purpose of, of this. So let's, let's frame all the events in that context. And in doing so, I'm, I'm just going to read about a page from, from this book. It's uh, the NIV application commentary on Esther. Uh, the consensus is that this is pretty much the best commentary on Esther out there. And it's, it's one, it's, so far I've read about half of it, and it's, it is very good. And it's what I'm using for a lot of, of what I'm, I'm pulling out here. Uh, it's asked by Karen Jobes. And so I'm going to read about a page here, and it's kind of kind of summarize the, the providence of God in the back of this chapter. So Jobes writes, The author of the book of Esther knew when he began to write that he was telling a story about how, against all odds, The fate of God's people was reversed and became the reason for the celebration called Purim. One seemingly insignificant event led to another, and this mysterious chain of human action and in this mysterious chain of human actions, the promise of the covenant made long before between God and his people was upheld and fulfilled. It's therefore worth noting what the event with what event the author begins telling the story. The author does not begin with Mordecai or Esther, he does not retell the history of the Jews. He begins the story with the Persian king Xerxes, who neither knew nor worshipped the god of the Jews. Xerxes decides to give a banquet, apparently from purely political motives needed to solidify support for his, his impending military campaign. A completely pagan king decides for purely worldly reasons to give a banquet designed for his self-aggrandizement. On the last day of the banquet, he decides to treat the men of his empire to a good look at his beautiful queen Vashti. This decision is probably not made from the most admirable of motives, at least not judged by Christian standards. With this, Xerxes sets in motion a chain of events that takes on a life of its own. In reaction to Xerxes, Queen Vashti, who is also not a worshiper of Yahweh, decides for whatever reason to refuse the king's command. She probably does not realize at the moment that her decision will change her life forever and bring another woman to the throne of Persia. With his one decision to display Vashti at his war council, Xerxes sets in motion a chain of events that culminates in the deliverance of God's people, fulfilling the promise of the ancient covenant made ages ago in a faraway place. When we think of redemptive history, we think of the great miracles that display God's power, but these mighty acts of God are linked together through long years of human history by a chain of seemingly insignificant, small, and ordinary events. We are now living in one of those long stretches of history between the ascension and return of Jesus Christ. Like Xerxes of long ago, modern kings, presidents, and rulers make decisions from purely political motives. Like Vashti, people today unwittingly make decisions that have long-reaching consequences far beyond what they could have seen. These events may be completely secular and perhaps made by people who give Christ no thought whatsoever. 
Nonetheless, through them, God is moving all of history forward to accomplish all that must happen before the return of his son, Jesus Christ, the true King of Kings. So as we go about living our lives this week, as we live the rest of our lives, let's keep that in the back of our mind. Even the seemingly small, ordinary events all have an ultimate purpose from God in bringing and redeeming his church and bringing his son back to rule and create a new heavens and a new earth. With that, we're, we're done for the day. Do we have any, any questions or comments or anything? We've got about five minutes. All right. Uh, Richard, would you close us in prayer? Amen.